Hello to everyone listening in on the podcast today. I have a guest who is a climbing acquaintance of mine. I've actually climbed with this guest today over in Colorado a few moons back. This is Peter Beale, who's going to be joining us on the show. He is a mixture of climbing coach, professor in art history and humanities, and also a boulderer of V12, so pretty handy on rock. He's a longtime climber of many years now, 45 to be precise, climbing since 1977. And unusually for the decade in which he started, he's always had a focus on bouldering right from the start. And that's even before bouldering became fashionable and its own sport. He's a contributor and commentator on the sport across publications like Rock and Ice, UKC, The Alpinist, and more. His voice and view is one that's impacted the climbing community over the years, of course, as a result. And aside from this, he's also the author of a book, Bouldering, Movement, Tactics and Problem Solving. I almost got the punctuation on that one wrong. And he is also a training and performance guy, having trained methodically for going on 40 years now and operates as a climbing coach, as I said, in Colorado. Um, and he's done this at really quite a high level for coming up to 20 years or so. And I thought what would be really interesting this podcast is to go through the history and background of training, performance, its journey, its development over the last five decades, because Peter has had an insight in experience and viewing all of this across those years. So we're really going to have a chat about the changes in climbing training and performance across the 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties and 10s. So welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom, thanks so much for having me on board. Really appreciate the opportunity. Well, let's um, let's get straight into the, the 70s, which was, of course, the era in which you or decade in which you started climbing. But I just want to preface it with a nod to someone who has just had so much impact in terms of training and the very highest levels of performance in climbing and particularly bouldering. And that's John Gill, who was operating through the 50s and 60s at just levels that took many, many years to surpass in further decades. What's your view in terms of what John contributed to the sport and to training as a whole initially? Well, um, it's really hard to overestimate, I think, the impact that John Gill had on the sport. Um, if we, if we, and actually, this is kind of a side note. A friend of mine just donated uh, to me a, a pile of American Alpine Journal <laughs> old ones from like the, I think 1966 through about 1972, and the '69 issue uh, is contained his uh, essay, "The Art of Bouldering," and I've read it elsewhere, but it's just fascinating to see it in its context of a journal dedicated to big objectives, whether it's El Capitan or things in the Himalayas or whatever, whatever. Um, to have this little article that would, in the next roughly 20 to 30 years, completely blow up the sport. So basically, what he emphasized in that was a very internalized approach to climbing on small objectives and a very, very specific dedication to physical strength. And it's a great piece because there's a little bit of, I almost hesitate to say, English-style sandbagging, where he says somewhat casually to to go bouldering, you're probably going to want to work on your one finger pull-ups and, you know, all these all kind of, you know, quote unquote, strength skills, which are even today, probably a little bit out of the reach of many serious uh, climbers. 
the, the key point here is that in 69, and then shortly after that, Pat Amen, a significant figure uh, here in Boulder for many, many years, in his book, Master of Rock, laid out in photographic form, as well as in uh, some very direct, unedited interviews, what, what this person was up to. Um, and, and the key thing, again, that small article is coming out of an experience of an individual who basically invented climbing for himself, where the, you know, the paradigm was very much about, you know, uh, getting up big objectives at a relatively modest grade of free climbing and, um, you know, pounding in some iron where necessary and, you know, all of that type of stuff, but never focusing on that physical and then ultimately the kind of psychological and intellectual aspect of, of really free climbing, really free climbing and not, um, you know, what people had kind of said was acceptable. Um, the effect of that just radiates out right up until the present age. So, I mean, when you see those pictures in Master Rock, or frankly, they also showed up in that American Alpine Journal, you know, it's a very straight shot from still photos in the, you know, early 1970s or late 60s. Um, the famous one of them doing levers on a children's swing set. It's kind of, you know, very homegrown. Uh, straight shot from that to the the slew training videos and all kinds of other material, whether it's on Instagram or, you know, other social media, YouTube. Um, yeah, it's, in my opinion, I've written on it. I, I really think he invented modern climbing. I, th I think it, it, some people I think were, again, Pat Amen is a good example of somebody who recognized the potential impact of this individual, but we're all kind of following in John Gill's footsteps. So, you know, <laughs> all, all uh, credit I think is due in, in, in many ways. Um, at least in America, for, for sure, you know, how we you change the vision of what climbing should be. I think for context for th those people listening is that, and I think I'm right in saying this, that at the time when he was climbing and, and training, there's, he was operating a level that was around V8, V9, in terms of difficulty of boulder problem, which was just so far ahead of what was being done at that in that era. And I think i'm also right in saying that he he didn't have a training regime which was heavily focused on some form of early fingerboarding that was coupled with that it was very much gymnastic style training that he was focused on is that correct so there there are various yeah i think i think for him like the, the classic quote-unquote boulder problem which wasn't really because it was really much more of a of like a short free solo called the thimble um, you know, this very small tower with an overhang face. He um, uh, had a habit of kind of going up and down the thing to get to the point where going down wasn't really an option. And one of the stories he tells is training on um, basically uh, bolt, uh, bolted beams in a gymnasium. So you have to imagine, you know, like the structure of the building had uh, I-beams held in place with, with bolts and nuts on them. And so he would hang on to those because they're very similar to the knobs that you would encounter uh, in, in the uh, in the needles um, in uh, South Dakota. So in a sense, he recognized that sport specific translation of grabbing on to these, you know, kind of like metal nubbins. And he, so he would train on those. But at the same time, you're absolutely correct. He's coming from a gymnastics background where the finger attachment piece is not as strong 
as the kind of strength skills, whether it's levers or you know working on the rings or rope climbing or things like that. Um, the the standard you're describing, by the way, difficulty wise, I think is pretty much correct. I think you know he again is relatively modest in terms of saying, oh yeah, I climbed difficulty X. It's probably more likely than not because there are these boulders out in the middle of nowhere near Pueblo, especially that are you know, probably closer to 10. So I think, especially by a lot of, we'll just say soft or not, modern standards uh, for that grade. So yeah, the, the part of your question about the finger training, he wasn't really into, I don't remember seeing a lot, and I've seen most of the pictures that he's posted with his website, Master of Rock, et cetera. Anything showing him, you know, hanging on to door jam type of things, back when they built doors that were strong enough to actually do that. Um, but those bigger strength skills, the one finger uh, pull-ups, the um, one-arm levers, you know, those kinds of things are, you know, you know, more sort of, you know, full body type of exercises and not the focus on the fingers. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's it is fascinating. And he's actually got a really quite a good website where you can go back and look at some of the writings and the articles that um, he's got on there, which is just a whole... I mean, it's a it's a it's a black hole of uh, information around feats of strength and things that were going on at the time and other very high level climbers of the age. And it was during some of the research that when I was reading up before I was chatting with you today that I was kind of trying to match up this UK history with US and what was happening on either side of the pond during the 70s. And on our side of things, we had, you know, this one location, which was kind of the birth of some of the initial hard, harder core training out of Leeds, um, which is in the north of England. And they had this you know, flat traversing wall um, and they would do these boulder problems with pebbles that were resined into the side of a flat wall or, or chipped out um, and do up, up problems, but you know, not above bouldering pads or that. And you had people like uh, John Syrett, Pete Livesey, um, and they were climbing really a, actually a relatively low intensity standard compared to John Gill. But on your side during the 70s, you had the phenomenon of Jim Holloway, who was this really tall, skinny, six foot five guy. And comparatively to Livesey and Syrett, I think I'm right in saying that he was climbing V12, V13 in the 70s. Is that right? Yeah, so so Holloway is a fascinating character. Again, out of the mainstream. Um, mm. Yes, he lived in Boulder, but he never really got into the the kind of traditional climbing objectives of the time. And he uh, had a taste for uh, what people would describe even today as relatively obscure, like variations on places uh, places like Flagstaff. Um, it's hard to tell because there's probably masterpiece called Slapshot uh, in the Flatirons right off a. Of, you know, popular running hiking trail. Um, uh, Flatiron sandstone can be a little fragile at times. So it's possible that things have changed a bit since he was on it. Um, but that's generally given the nod toward B13. Um, the variation on uh, Cloud Shadow Rock at Flagstaff given, um, you know, B12, B13, depending on, you know, beta and, and whatnot like that. Um, so yeah, and it's and it's kind of you know it's interesting the figures you mentioned, especially Pete Livesey and the rest, were, you know, very much training for their environments, which is you know kind of 
long and um, you know potentially quite dangerous, relatively low technical difficulty. I mean, something like right wall or you know that type of environment where you need to keep going for 50, 60, 70 moves with you know occasional stop for resting or protection. And I, I actually climbed at the Leeds wall uh, when I was in the UK and I, I was like, you know, oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is a terrible training facility. Um, but, you know, for, for the standard of that time and the attitude of that time, you know, the people were willing to put in, you know, the hard work of just like mindlessly going across. And I believe the Leeds wall was actually intended for climbing of a much lower grade, but the the people that started using it more seriously ferreted out. They basically off-rooted all the, the good holds and started, you know, creating, in essence, these early, you know, kind of uh, indoor gyms, you know, contriving things. And, you know, I remember sort of equivalent of that when I was in the UK, the, the Broom Grove wall was the same, the same kind of thing with an added bonus of, if not being inside, at least had a little roof over it so that you could, you know, you could find <laughs> some sort of training opportunity even during the dismal Sheffield winter yeah we, well, we definitely need um our our all weather conditions in the UK and as you like said it it was on this side quite uh, sort of mapped out in terms of the demands of the sport and and the type of training that was occurring and we had these yeah traversing walls like Broomgrove and like the the Leeds Traverse and but what I think was fascinating mm -hmm. about that that dive into or that change in the culture of the best in the sport where they started to do this more meaningful, uh, purposeful training was that the standard was jumping forward very quickly. You know, I know John Syrup had made a, a big hoo-ha in turning up as a relative beginner and going and doing Wall of Horrors, which was quite a high E grade at the time. And he was, people were going, well, where does this come from? Right, um, who is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From a training background and Livesey, yeah. you know, quickly pushed that standard on the E grades from E2 through to E6. And it's just that quick ramp up in terms of yeah. the grades and that physical thing, because it was the first time that it had really been done in a, a systematic, consistent, structured way across a number of individuals. And I think for me, the 70s was the birth of higher, higher consistency, higher frequency people being involved with some form of training. I don't know if you've you yeah. the same view. Yeah, well, I think that's absolutely true. And there are a lot of things that are beginning to converge and, and the piece we shouldn't leave out, I'm sure, you know, hopefully people appreciate my mentioning this, is that um, especially in on the continent, so Europe and especially Germany, um, there's a there's an approach to climbing, I think, where people were, were looking at, you know, again, the reality of you know, the need for physical strength and beginning to turn away from, um, what I would describe as a very adventure-focused mindset uh, regarding climbing. Um, and there are a lot of complicated sort of psychological and even ideological aspects to that transition um, where people are talking about training as, as though it's, you know, some form of cheating. It's, it's a very strange mentality, and I always struggle dealing with it, where, you know, the likes, again, in the, the American climbing scene, the likes... Uh, of someone like Tony and Nero, for instance, and a number of others, uh, Ray Jardine also, were, were not merely slandered, but in some cases their roots were, you know, they might be chopped or, you know, other types of very 
like retaliatory techniques for simply pointing out the obvious, which is that if you're looking at real free climbing, you actually need to apply real physical strength. And there was a, a lot of kind of moralizing about you had to have the right character to get up a rock climb or something like this. Um, and, you know, if you looked at somebody like John Gill, who, you know, had plenty, I mean, the, not only did he do the thimble, he did a number of other quite off the ground, a uh, place called Blacktail Butte near the Tetons. So tall, 50, 60 foot limestone walls, you know, very, I, you know, if you were doing without a rope, I think they'd get a British E5 or E6 grade. And he would just on-site this stuff. <laughs> like, oh my God. Um, Roy Robbins, by the way, also an interesting uh, figure, major figure in American climbing, uh, did some significant free climb, especially soloing later in his career before he dropped out of climbing. Um, so there's a lot of that kind of character thing going on, but um, I, I think in that kind of orbit of the Germans, English, and some Americans as well, it was recognized that, yeah, you know, character, fine, preserve the rock, whatever, but that if you applied yourself, and, and they really applied themselves, I mean, it's kind of crazy, the kind of training volume and intensity uh, that some of these people were doing, a Nero classic example, if you train it just a little bit, you get these effects, like you're just mentioning with the wall of horrors where, you know, everybody's, you know, kind of open jawed about an E3 and you're like, you know, is it E3, E4? I don't know. Um, and it's like, that's the level. And somebody goes on, has done a few pull-ups and a few a little bit of fingerboarding. So it's no big deal, right? <laughs> it's no big deal. Um, and then everyone's like, well, and some people say uh, that, well, he cheated to do it, right? And other people would be like, I want to learn how to do that. And then that's where it, that's where it goes from next. So, yeah, that's my take on it. It was interesting starting, you know, at the time that I did, I didn't know it because I was just, you know, a little kid, but you rapidly begin to figure out the sort of players and the sort of pieces on the chessboard and where they're going. And uh, it's a time of great change. Definitely. Mm. Well, look, Moving into the the next day, decade in the eighties, I think yeah. we really saw some some big names that probably even to this day are still household names, and I think even recognised by by the youth climbers of today that then had their further impacts. You know, people like Backer, Moffat, Fawcett, um, Wolfgang Gulick as well. Yeah, those those names and and the methods that. I think they brought to the sport was mm -hmm. the entry of things like the backer ladder, um, early fingerboard training, uh, right. campus born training, etc. How, how did you see that from your perspective of, um, you know, being involved with the sport? And you, you, I know you're a, a boulder specialist, um, but did you see those tools being accessible to you? How did you observe this period? So that's a that's a good question. Uh, part of the part of the issue that's interesting for me is I started climbing in a relative backwater. So um, there's definitely a certain degree because I mostly started climbing this in uh, New Hampshire, which is very much like then there was a lot of this sort of peculiar anglophilia in American climbing. Royal Robbins, I think, kind of kickstarted that. But um, I don't know whether it's just like you're climbing in New England, so everybody's kind of emulating, you know the the clean climbing and, you know, setting off into the unknown and all the rest of it. Um, so some of those developments were like kind of slow to come in uh, to play, but um, it was pretty obvious. I mean, the, the person who really launched, I think, training 
in this country, at least in a kind of visible way, I'm going to kind of argue for John Backer. There's little question about that to my mind where he had his, you know, and we had video and, and, and photos of his uh, training setup, like in Camp 4 and elsewhere. Um, and, and so people looked at that. And then, then we had things like, you know, the Backer ladder, which is, you know, kind of a silly thing and considered responsible for wrecking more than a few people's elbows. But it was for the time, one of the earliest dedicated kind of like you could tell it was something for climbing, right? There were a lot of things. If you, if John Gill was repurposing the rings, it was still a gymnastics device. Um, it's, or if it's door jams, it's like it's door jams in the house, even though it's a, a great fingerboard is, you know, people didn't know it at the time. Um, so the backer ladder was kind of a, you know, a thing that said, and, it, and of course it had a great sound to it, backer ladder. So, you know, never underestimate, you know, coming from my sort of professor thing saying like, look at how things look and how things sound. It can have an effect on people. Um, so backer was kind of the, the public face of training, I think for a lot of climbers and, and he was definitely pretty strong. I mean, in the sense of, you know, somebody who, and I've looked at some of these videos from the, the early mid eighties. And these are, these are 514 strengths. I mean, we're talking like being able to do a solid one arm pull up off a of first pad edge. It, it's like, that's mm. not 512, that's 514 strength. You can definitely do it. Um, but the problem for Backer was that he was invested in that adventure idea. So what he was doing was bulletproofing his body against messing up on dangerous routes, whether it's um, roped or, or free soloing. And so, you know, he's basically trying to have things as redundant as possible as, you know, like climbing with carabiners that are rated to 25,000 pounds, you know, that kind of, you, you want to bulletproof your body. And so he never, for reasons of his own inclination or whatever, said, I should really take my strengths and see what I, what I can climb. My guess is a backer could have climbed 514B without too much effort if he settled into it, but you know, whatever. Um, the person who really took that in the, you know, in that kind of next direction, uh, you mentioned Jerry Moffat, and that's a really good place to start. But I think he probably took a lot of cues from Wolfgang uh, Kulik for sure. Um, that that's the individual who, in many ways, really set it up so that people could look and see the relationship between concentrated, you know, and fairly uh, regulated physical training and extraordinarily high grades in climbing. And he's also legitimated because he did the adventure side really well. Um, you know, we have the solo of separate reality. We have the stuff out in Trango Towers, you know, dangerous stuff in Dresden. So everybody looked at Wolfgang and saw like the full package. And then obviously, um, then obviously action direct. I mean, that was like the thing that just, whoa. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and for, for a route like Action Direct to hang on to its aura 30 something years later uh, in, in uh, you know, the world of sport climbing, that's pretty impressive. I, I, you, you really have to hand it to him. But I think he, what did he die in 92? So we're talking like a 30 year since then. It's just, you know, still reverberating and, and a real loss to the, to the climbing community for sure. Yeah. I mean, like you look at the, the, the change in standards across the 80s and, you know, it went all the way up to 8B plus during that period. And I, I totally agree with you in terms of Backer being physically capable of that kind of grade, maybe even a grade harder again. I mean, 
his if you just look at his two two arm two up max pull up score in terms of what he could pull on a bar it was thick 63 kilograms on top of body weight that's the kind of metrics that i see from v30 v14 v15 climbers and yeah no it's insane yeah like yeah very very elite and i yeah i have no doubt that he could do it um yeah but i still think it's really interesting that during the 80s despite the uh the grades going up in terms of bouldering and sport climbing a lot of the the development in terms of the the next set of grades was founded in this strength element still within the sport there wasn't some you know amazing new methodology of endurance or power endurance training really in terms of mm-hmm. what anyone was doing it was still breakthroughs in terms of that strength training element and i think that's fascinating that the sport right from those early years had those breakthroughs off the back of strength work that G- john gill saw all that time ago as being a gymnastic yep. strength exercise right i mean you know if you if the part of the trick i think is is that climbing wasn't just evolving in terms of training. It was also evolving in terms of what was recognized as a hard route. So, I mean, if you, if you think about, you know, let's take the UK trajectory. So, uh, you know, Revelations was a big deal, right? So on, on Raven Tour, and you have a relatively short, you know, concentrated crux at the bottom. Boom, you've got a hard route. And it's very powerful and succumbs readily to that kind of strength mentality. Uh, and then that kind of reaches its, you know, apogee with Hubble, and and the time compression is pretty tight on that measured against the, st- the sport as a whole. Because Hubble, I think, is ninety one, and Revelations is like eighty three, something like that. Um, you know, obviously having Antoine come along and solo Revelations pretty briskly right after that was a, you know, a bit of a glitch in the, you know, in the in the um, the historical trajectory. But still, that was one avenue. Right. And so for for Ben to hit basically a V13 or V14 boulder problem on a on a route in 91 is really, really impressive. And much like Action Direct, it, the reputation stuck. But over time, what you start seeing, I think, is more again following the UK trajectory, uh drift uh toward power endurance. So some a route like liquid amber would be another, you know, or even evolution, just to give two of the more significant Jerry Moffat contributions. Those are much less about that, you know, two, three move crux and then, you know, French 7C to the, to the top kind of stuff. And then the shift uh, goes away from that even because those routes are relatively compressed in terms of distance um, to the kinds of things you start seeing in France um, uh, and in Spain. Initially, I think in France, so the kind of stuff that was uh, being put in at a, I don't know, a place like Oregon or other things like that, where it's very, very sustained 60 to 80 foot routes, no hard moves, quote unquote, but absolutely zero easy moves. And then finally, you, you wind up with a situation we're in now where you have these monster pitches, you know, 30, 40 meter pitches, pretty hard the whole way in uh, places like Spain. And now that typically is seen as the standard against which the international elite, they all measure themselves against that. So the likes of Hubble or even Action Direct are kind of, you know, out of the mainstream. They're seen as, I won't say aberrations, but just kind of, you know, not, not, it, it's like a very big and very small. You know, yeah, it's 14, but 
you know, it's a slab climb or, or you know, a meltdown, I guess, you know, also in the quarries. So it's a little too specialized. Um, and, and therefore, even though they're valid routes, I mean, they obviously have merit, but the standard is now for steadily overhung, you know, maybe 25 meter minimum to like 40 meter endless endurance, power endurance. And so that standardizing of the track, as it were, also implies a standardization of the training, right? So when people are kind of figuring out what made a hard route, it was especially coming from bouldering, you know, which, you know, goes all the way back to Fontainebleau. I mean, all, all the rest of it. It's like, okay, we can look at that and apply that paradigm to root and you get a certain kind of root. And then uh, as we both know, now Raven Tours kind of climbed out, you know, what do, what do we do next? So, so we go to Spain, right? Or we find, and I'm impressed with the kinds of things that are being found in the Franken era still, you know, the, where you, you just shift the paradigm. And now I think whether it's being driven in part by comps or just new terrain being found, that's the kind of paradigm. 25 meters to 40 meters, you know, 14, just American grading, uh, 14D to 15C, you're just chugging along. You might get a knee bar rest, you might not, whatever, whatever. But yeah, the, the age of a international renown for a 25 foot route is like, you know, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> So that, that I, like I said, I think that, that changes the training thing. Like if you were training an athlete in running, uh, you know, a, a marathon or, or, you know, a more focused, we know what the rules are. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that you saw across the 90s was that, you, you know, you had Harbour and Action Direct arriving at the 90s. And really the, the difficulty, the bouldering standard within those routes was, not a million miles off where we are now in terms of what the top athletes are using. And even the best yeah. athletes now are very happy if they tick something like Hubble, for example. And yep. then, and then you saw that slight shift in the training approach with, you know, not like 1993 opening the schoolroom in Sheffield and mm -hmm. having moon Moffat, um, saw miles, those kind of people all climbing in that place and doing that more systematic training system boards, replica mm -hmm. training, um, and those new kind of more advanced techniques coming and bringing it all together. You had the Huber brothers as well over in. Yeah, Europe. no question. Yeah. yeah another figure, an, another figure who might get overlooked a little bit is the French climber, Francois Legrand, who very, very was cool. very dominant in comps, but also really, really for the time, almost unstoppable on real rock as well. And really emphasized in his training much more. He was kind of like Adam Andra, at least early Adam Andra, who said, oh, I'm not very strong. I'm not very, <laughs> whatever. But, you know, he didn't focus on that kind of brutal, you know, like you just mentioned, the schoolroom training aspect. Um, and uh, yeah, he contributed a lot in a number of, of, not just in France, but also in America and elsewhere. And also in terms of comp uh, climbing and, and his outlook on how to, you know, how to prepare oneself for that. Mm. Well, Kind of on, on our chronology, we've, we've kind of arrived yeah. in our in our 2000s now and, uh, you know, fi finished off the 90s with stuff like Open Air by Huber. Yeah. Graded 9A up to 9A plus um, with repeats. Um, but the 2000s saw the arrival of one indoor walls and it really yeah. started to become a bit more of a kind of a commercial, easy access. Lots of them all over the world. Lots of people get mm -hmm. involved there. Fingerboarding also really yeah. like arrived properly um, in the 2000s, albeit 
late in the 2000s. And at the same fair. time, yeah. during that decade, we saw, you know, V15, we saw 9A plus come through, we saw 9B with Jumbo Love and Sharma. What mm-hmm. were the kind of headline things that you saw change across the 2000s in terms of training uh, interjected so, performance? So one of the fascinating things that happened was first, like uh, in America, there was a book released, which you probably read, uh, called Performance Rock Climbing. I have its great book. Yeah, it's a, it's really it holds up really well. I was just telling a friend uh, on Facebook. Uh, you know, there's some things I think that you know I still am surprised it never went into other editions, but whatever that you know it, that could be augmented or you know altered a bit. But by and large, the paradigm that was set out of that was quite strong. I think it's based you know to some degree, uh, um, you know, on some of the work that especially um, Wolfgang have been doing. Um, but a great kind of, especially for an English speaking audience, a great resource to begin to rethink what climbing would be about. Um, so yeah, top marks to, to Dale and, and Udo for, for putting that out. It's hugely helpful, hugely influential in getting people to start thinking a little bit more rationally about how climbing works, which has always been a problem in the history of the sport. Um, people caught up again in that adventure ethic and they just kind of the kind of magic of moving up rock. You're like, wow, this is it's amazing. And so you don't really think about, oh, it's a physical, you know, it's a sport. Um, the trick was that <clears throat> where it got interesting was that the, the late 90s and into the early 2000s, I think um, a lot of people were caught up. I mean, it's necessary to think about, you know, body weight and fat ratios and things like that and intensity of effort and dedication. Um, the problem was that a lot of the leading lights of the late eighties, early nineties, I think got swallowed up a little bit too much in that. And um, all of a sudden you have these characters show up and I'm just talking to the American scene and I'm trying to think if there's a good uh, English or other equivalent, but I'll just focus on the American scene. So then Chris Sharma shows up, right? So all these slightly older climbers have been, starving themselves and doing crazy stuff to get up, you know, mid 14 and blah, 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 blah. And, and you know, that was pretty cool uh, that some of these routes went up, but Chris Sharma came along and just did them. Like there's a, there's a route that he did, which I don't think really many people know about, but a route that's been upgraded to French 8C and rifle called lungfish. I've worked on that a fair amount. So I know the route and Sharma did it in a day. And I'm not still not sure anybody else has ever done that. And this was like, you know, whatever it was, 93, 95, somewhere in there. We'll just say 95. That seems, we'll just put it in the middle of the decade. Um, just did it, right? And, and I remember, because I was in a comp, which I was obviously too old to be in a national comp. But nevertheless, I made it to, you know, whatever. And we're watching Chris climb with like his wallet in his back pocket. Like you could see it. He's got like this thing dangling. He doesn't care. He just doesn't care. And he's like asking, hey man, do you have any chalk? I think it's like the one time I've met Chris Sharma, which is like 16 years old. I haven't seen him since, whatever. And like, this is ridiculous. Everyone else is like, you know, cutting the little bits off their harnesses to make sure they don't have a single nanogram of extra weight to get the, you know, and Chris Sharma doesn't care, right? He just doesn't care. And he hikes, Tommy Caldwell. You know, obviously coming from a great background, super supportive fathers, a dedicated climber and all that, had him climbing since whenever, whenever. I wouldn't say he didn't care, but he just started just crushing everything in sight. 
Um, same thing on the female side. So you got the likes of Katie Brown. So this new generation just comes in and they're not obsessed about all the things that the previous agenda, they just seem to like take it for granted they can climb 514. And a lot of people are like, whoa, I, can't, I just can't even deal. And, and so we have a, a remarkable number of people just retiring. I mean, it's really strange to see um, fair number of well-known names just drop out of climbing. As soon as that wave came in, they suddenly recognized maybe, I don't know, they were a little scared of it that a new attitude had come into, into play. So what you start seeing, fortunately, uh, you know, it's the likes of Fred Nicole coming in. And Fred is just so revolutionary, just to take the example of bouldering, um, being a kind of a big guy who takes a very uh, imaginative approach to finding boulders and solving the problems, um, very much in tune with the surroundings, um, not um, full of that kind of weird and sometimes like a little bit angry and just like, you know, countercultural in terms of uh, climbing. And he's just like, yeah, we're out here to have a good time. And I'm also, and he and his brother, obviously, you know, both strong as heck. Um, so the, the 95 to 2005 was an interesting changing of the guard um, on the training piece where people began to kind of see different ways to kind of tune their minds and bodies into the demand of high-end climbing. And again, they're discarding more and more that adventure piece that, you know, I'm so cool because I'm running it out on, you know, whatever and saying, you know, I'm just going to go to the gym, <laughs> I know, heaven forbid, and I'm just going to learn how to climb better. And I'm going to learn how to climb more relaxed and I'm going to figure out ways to tune my training into the demands of a route as opposed to some idea in my head of what a route should be. And so I really think that, you know, the, the foundation of what we're looking at today, especially also with comps beginning to take off, that right around that 95 to 2005, that's kind of where we're still operating to some degree. And it was a great change. It was really awesome. It, it meant that, you know, people like me could, could learn from younger people, new attitudes, and we had resources and facilities to allow us to, be, to remain serious climbers, even as we were starting to get older. Because right? now you have a gym, you don't have to, you know, drive four hours to go get on something that, you know, may or may not have a warm up nearby or anything like that. You just like you go, you just go to the gym. You know, like it, I think, did you hear the phrase in in uh, Boulder Valmont Canyon? So like you know how all the gyms are clustered next to each other. <laughs> so in the in the area of a of a road, uh, Valmont. Um, yeah, you have uh, the Rock Club, you have uh, Movement, you have the Spa, you know, they're all within like half a mile, which is great, right? So you just go there and supermarkets right next to it. So if you need to run errands after or before, you can do that too. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can get strong and stay strong um, so much more easily than, than back in the day that way. Yeah. Mm, yeah. It's a, uh, I feel like as well, when, when I look at, the, the 2000s is that you had quite a quite a significant increase in the the, the the high end of sport climbing but it was also accompanied by a bit more depth right at the top end of bouldering and pushing that grade forward again that decade so kind of moving into that v16 range of those <laughs> first problems being put up within the 2000s but then filled in behind it a really 
significant density of lots of people operating at 14 and 15 behind it so that across the industry as a whole you had a nicer balance between the high-end intensity difficulty element but also the sport and fitness and it it felt like really to me looking at the sport that climbing was maturing in terms of becoming more rounded physically technically tactically across all disciplines and they were in line whereas i i feel like when i look back 20 years before that it was very difficulty and bouldering and strength oriented and it hadn't just come together in terms of the fitness and efficiency that was applied with it and partly down to the fact that there wasn't bolted routes for many many decades uh, until that arrived so it's it's really interesting seeing that come together yeah, I, I would really agree with that 100%. The the idea, again, and I always like, you sort of do these historical counterfactuals. So just imagine if somebody had said, let's just imagine a hypothetical person owned a hypothetical crag. So they don't, no one's going to come and chop these roots. And it's a European style crag. It's obviously never going to accept natural protection or anything. That the technology of 1966 which is basically all you need is a nylon rope and construction bolts and carabiners, right? You could easily put up a 14 whatever route on this, on this hypothetical cliff and say, I don't care what other people are saying. I'm just going to try to climb this thing, right? But that wasn't real climbing, so you couldn't do it. And, and, and I mean, it's just insane. Now, obviously, sticky rubber certainly helped, but there are plenty of people climbing all kinds of crazy things in hiking boots or bare feet or whatever. Um, but moving forward to your to your bigger point in terms of that that overall physical sort of well-roundedness, absolutely. People started looking at the challenges that were sort of latent, especially in European cliffs. You just look at those pictures of places like Serana, Cuenca. I mean, the, the list, Rodear, the list goes on and on. Uh, Oleana of these massive walls. And you're like, okay, great, I can boulder V13 or 14, but that still leaves another 80 feet <laughs> to get to the top. And it's an obvious challenge. I mean, you can't, you can't ignore a wall like that. And so people uh, were able, and again, thanks to Jim, to develop both sides simultaneously and be aware of what it, what, what it might take to get there. And so, yeah, what you would need is like three schoolrooms stacked on top of each other, right? And you dial down to think about the physical demands of doing three, you know, strenuous V11 stacked on top of each other, which is a really hard route. And lo and behold, you do that, you're climbing 9A. And if you believe you can do it and you put in the work, <laughs> it's gonna happen. And that's what's so amazing, like you said, in that, that, that sort of transformation, you know, 2005 on out, that's, that's pretty much what we're dealing with. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, too, is the increased possibilities for people to be financially supported a little bit more consistently, whether that's the comp scene or just uh, the more and more marketers seeing the potential in terms of saying to climbers, yeah, you know, I'd like you to represent our brand. And that's giving more and more climbers the freedom to, um, you know, simply dedicate themselves for a period of their lives to those. And, and in that dedication, uh, you're starting to see because most climbers, I think, are pretty darn intelligent. They start looking at the ways in which they can get better at the, you know, at, at, at the, the the sport itself and also the the ideas of training. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, moving on to the the, the last decade, and yeah, uh, I think for me, I feel like the the last ten years has been, or the or the decade from the you know two thousand and ten onwards, yeah, the, the the decade of the the domination of Andra, yeah, in many ways, yeah. oh yeah, no, huge fan of Adam Andra, yeah. Don't say anything bad about Adam Andre around me. I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know what's fascinating when I, I look at Adam and uh-huh. the approach he took and what he performed or, or what he, he's achieved is, yeah. is in essence, he hasn't had any access to any new training tools or even his, mm-hmm. his peers who operated at the same very roughly similar grades during that period. They didn't have any new tools that anyone didn't have have in the 2000s yep. and in the 90s there was nothing yep. different i don't think physically whether it's strength or fitness they were a million miles off where others were but yeah. i do think that like one was that how ability to have the support and be you know fully professional and really go after it and specialize but secondly i think you saw individuals like adam come through who also delivered the full package of utterly true excellence in terms of strategy technique tactics psychology and pull together all those things in with already truly exceptional physical specimen of climbing and that's what to me pulled that next set of grades out it wasn't another level of strength or another level of fitness at least from not from my point of view yeah, so that's a that's a fascinating uh, Adam's a, a fascinating case because, uh, I mean, you, you had once he really broke out of the scene, you had like ridiculous things like trying to figure out whether his long neck or something was like the key. To, I'm like, you know, just let's not go there. That that it, it has more to do with what was between his ears than anything to do with his neck. Um, it, he started climbing quite young, and that's I think something that that generation that I just mentioned, the Sharmas and Caldwells, um, that it was seen as more and more normal for somebody that's kind of start climbing at seven or eight, you know, and it could be just like at a kid's birthday party or something like that. But the spark is, you know, it catches on and and that climber keeps on just acquiring those movement skills. And, And, you know, if you if you think of climbing as especially on rock, so we're kind of focusing on rock, it could be comps, but you know, rules can change in terms of what priorities for comps are, but we'll say we have a pretty good idea of what a hard sport route looks like. Um, The climber who's training for that has to get used to the feel of what it means to climb hard. So there's a lot of that coping with stress. I'll make analogies to like, I've never done it, so I don't know what I'm talking about, but driving a race car at 200 miles an hour, the physics are all there. The car is built to handle that. The track is built to handle that. And the way you get good at that is you just get the kind of, you know, all the stuff, the, you know, the sort of proprioceptive piece, responding quickly to stimuli, responding to challenges um, and being comfortable doing that or downhill skiing, the same kind of thing. It doesn't take a lot of uh, kind of physical strength to keep that, you know, from veering off course. Another analogy I make would be like, Imagine carrying like a weight that you can kind of comfortably handle on a barbell, you know, let's just say like 50 pounds, but you get to walk along the, 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 you know, the ridge line of a roof. So a little bit out of balance either way. And suddenly that 50 pounds turns into a life-threatening nightmare. See, so the 
cooler and calmer you are, kind of like slacklining, in that moment, the much more easily you're able to handle the demands, physical, mental, whatever. And Adam and a number of other kind of like young prodigy types have an uncanny ability to keep their cool. It was like when he did, I think he was like 14 when he did Vogu, which is just insane. I mean, that is a, you know, for a 14 year old, it's a, it's a big route, what, 300 plus meters, run out hard, you know, in your face from the very beginning to the very end. And he just kind of did it like in two days. And I was like, oh, this is not the average, you know, teenager who did something in the Red River Gorge, which is cool. But this is like dealing with adult territory on adult terms and not really worried too much. Um, and then, you know, and I've interviewed him. I did a, a short interview a number of years back with my blog. And, you know, one of the things that really stood out with, with his climbing style and, and I asked him a little bit was how fast he climbed. So like a lot of climbers will hedge their bats and be like, you know, yeah, you know, hang out here. Blah, blah, blah. And he just charges and this is on site. And so what gives him the ability to do that, I think, is that a, lots and lots and lots and lots of experience from a very young age in terms of dealing with the demands of high-end climbing. A lot of belief that it's going to be okay. Um, that's what's so funny also about his screaming. <laughs> so I think he's, you know, he's so upset because he's like really sure this is going to work. So now he's really ticked that it didn't. I don't know. You know, kind of like flipping from one extreme to the other. Um, but it was a real revelation to people. I remember uh, there's a great video of him um, doing a route in Spain called Il Domani, just like a 9A. And, you know, he's weaving his way through various wet tufas and all this other stuff. And I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> and he doesn't, and the, uh, the best thing too, is he doesn't care. He's like, you know, go look, I don't have any secrets. Like you said, there's no new training secret sauce. Um, he's just, I, I really think it boils down to that ability to cope. And that's something like when I'm coaching, you know, I really, I'll ask them, somebody says, oh, I want to climb a certain grade. And I'll be like, do you know what that looks like? Like what the route looks like? Like, what are you actually dealing with? And, and they don't, they haven't, they haven't gone and like gotten on that route grade and said, oh, I think this is, this is what it consists of. These are the size of holes. These are the angles. This is the time on the route. These are the number of moves. This is the type of terrain, et cetera, et cetera. And Adam seemed to dial that down so early on that process and just, it just blossomed for him in so many incredible ways. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he's been a, a, yeah, a complete force of nature and yeah. his, his contribution to what he's provided to climbing has been beyond what just his grades have done or what yeah. his competitions have got. I think he's actually opened a lot of people's eyes to the, mm -hmm the breadth of the climbing experience and how much comes to the game. And I think it's nice that he's been vocal about saying that it's not just strength. It's not just technique. It's this whole rich tapestry of all the elements that go into climbing. And I think for most of us, why we, it fascinates us and it's so hard to master and you can be in the sport for two, three, four, five decades and still feel like yeah. you're learning. And yeah, no, I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why so many of us were annoyed that he was forced to go speed climbing for the Olympics. Because I'm like, you know, this is a waste of his time. It's a waste of his potential. I, I mean, he was so, this is the other thing. Um, the professionalism 
all the time. I mean, I have heard enough, I won't say horror stories, but things that are like, come on, really? Did you do that? Famous Climber X. And I literally never, ever, ever encountered or heard anything where he was like, you know, saying bad things about other, you know, all the stuff that was very typical in the 90s. It's just like his attitude was so open and honest. And like you said, uh, in terms of giving to the community that way. And so, you know, like he would do an interview for my little blog, or he would talk to all kinds of people at all kinds of occasions. And, and, and he would say things. I remember this relatively early in his career. He's like, yeah, I'm not strong. I can't do one arm pull up. I mean, he could pretty soon, but you know, the, the point was there that he wasn't, um, he wasn't just about training and he wasn't just about succeeding in comps. He basically just really loved climbing and he wanted to do as well as he could in all these things and uh, left a lot of us. Yeah. With their jaws on the floor. Cause it just, holy crow. And I don't know who's going to replace him. That's the other, you know, he's, he's probably got, you know, he's got a kid on the way. Right. I believe. And, you know, he's probably going to go into some kind of cool business thing. I don't know what it will be. And, and, you know, so there has to be another, I just don't know who that is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I suppose that, uh, that round, that rounds us out to, um, to finish this off is, you know, as I said, you said at the start, you've, you've been, you've traveled across five decades of, of <laughs> climbing and, you, and you've seen a lot and yeah, that provides a really interesting perspective. So I would be interested to see where you think it's going and what what do you feel needs to change? Do you see the, yeah, where is the future for you lies? Is it new tools? Is it new approaches? Where is it? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, one of the things we didn't touch on, uh, for instance, in, in terms of new techniques was uh, things like knee barring and other, other sorts of like alternative attitudes towards the rock so you know there were stories in the in the 60s that for instance you know uh, dynamic moves sort of lunging or heel hooks and things weren't quite seen as appropriate for climbing like the postures were a little too animalistic a little, little weird stuff going on you know like the the standard was a an upright person in hiking boots climbing a thing with an ice axe kind of vibe to it so from a, you know, and you and I are both very much aware of how one thinks about movement, how that can begin to alter how we feel about climbing and, and how easily the climate go. So, you know, the rapid adoption of what we might describe as alternate techniques, toe hooks, you know, other parts of the body, so to speak, than the standard fingers and toes, um, that the willingness to kind of really adapt to those techniques has really paid off in some uh, in very interesting ways. In, in some cases, I mean, the classic thing was the climber on Hubble with the knee pads kind of, <laughs> you know, the, that spawned, I don't know how many pages on UK bouldering about, you know, had, you know, with a little justification, <laughs> I mean, whatever. Uh, but, uh, you know, so that's a thing. I, I don't know there really are necessarily any new techniques in the horizon. It's really hard to predict that. It seems to me like a lot of the tools are pretty standardized for free climbing. Um, so, uh, I don't know, climbing shoes are pretty much climbing shoes, climbing shoes from the nineties are still pretty usable. We wouldn't say that about climbing shoes from the sixties. Um, 
chalk is chalk. I mean, it's chalk. And that was a huge thing. If, if I didn't make that clear before that John Gill brought to the sport was this like accepting, okay, we're going to use chalk. Huge, huge difference. Um, yeah. Uh, the gear is the gear. It's carabiners and ropes for the most part for high end. We're not going to see spectacular widgets that allow things to, you know, whatever. That doesn't matter. Basically, long story short. So I think the, the main thing is coming back to that that piece about how we learn about climbing and part of it is just we kind of learn from past experience and so the person who just is able to get on relatively early mid hard 514 routes and says oh this isn't so bad and i'm learning from it i'm learning how to use my feet reasonably well although again the technical demands aren't crazy i tell friends they're probably seven-year-olds in gymnastics whatever's that are doing physical and kind of kinesthetic skills that most climbers will never touch, even at the upper end. They, they can do stuff that like most climbers will never, never do. Um, so I think it boils down to, and again, I'm mostly interested in real rock, not on, not on comp so much. In terms of that ability to respond quickly and effectively to challenges in the rock um, with a lot of depth, right? So you're you're climbing and you're not freaked out by the fact that you're, facing some horrendous move it's like oh this is cool right this is cool not this is an existential struggle for my identity but this is cool and that's kind of what sharma brought to it you know back in the mid 90s this is cool yeah we'll just do it and um if you can sort of marshal or i should, should say keep strength in reserve that way so you're not constantly winding up for every move hitting that threshold you know, say, I don't know, 70, 80% of max all the time. You can kind of dial that back because you're relaxed. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me perfectly obvious that we could get to 516, mid-16 in the next 10 years. It's, it's, it's obvious. I mean, I see these pictures, again, in Flatanger and other places where there are massive jugs, right? Or a, a knee bar rest where you can like let go for five minutes. So it's like, imagine a route, same difficulty. You just like get rid of that. And you say, okay. <laughs> I'll go do it, right? I mean, it was cool with the whole thing with silence, with the with the wacky jams and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, I remember you and uh, it's Pete, right? They were analyzing like, oh, this is just you know five five twelve climbing. You just Adam Andre doesn't know how to jam. Right? I thought that was hilarious, but that's kind of again that style is going to be off the beaten path of recognized difficulty, and there's going to be something. It could just be some weird link up at Oleana, you know, that says. I'm just going to do 9B into 9B with a, you know, some, I, I, maybe we should do a, another podcast on the critical role of link-ups <laughs> in determining, and, and a, along with the grade algorithms that go with it, you know, like 9A plus with a 10 second bad knee bar rest into 8C plus equals X, as opposed to, you know, you have this formula. Because link-ups are kind of effective in demolishing a sacred root, you know, like, oh, the root, right? And they're also effective in normalizing and homogenizing assessment of difficulty. Because now it's just a, it's like, it's just a commodity. 9B is a commodity. And, and you know, if you, come, if you go into a party and say, hey guys, I just climbed a 9B, everyone's like, whatever. <laughs> and you say, no, no, really, it's an 8C into a thing. And everyone's still whatever, but now they get the sense it's normal, right? And when a thing is normal, then you could do it more easily 
And then, so that's the, maybe that's a, a yeah, the importance of, of linkups. <laughs> Everyone hates them, but it, the stacking principle is, is real. Well, that, that, there you are, folks. You, you heard it from Peter. Linkups are the future. Sure, yeah, <laughs> the future is linkups. I, 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 I suggested in a Facebook discussion, real quick, let me just tell you this that the future of Raven Tor was like the full, you know, whatever the power band, you know, the, the traverses that go along the base going into, what is it? Uh, mutation, I guess, or some equivalent or into Brandenburg Gate or whatever you want. You know, that's the, that's the future. Dismal future for some, but there it is. Okay, go ahead, sorry. I was about to say, um, uh, when we were eventually di diving into the, the depths of um, link-ups and uh, grade algorithms and things like that, that truly is, the point at which I have to say, right, we need to get on a different podcast, but we also need to bring in Remus, our original stats guy at Lattice, because he loves this concept. So uh, yeah. we'll, yeah, we'll have numbers. To, we'll have to book in a call and, uh, yeah. and get real geeky. Yeah, not numbers have a weird leveling effect on people, and when you level things and you remove a little bit of the mystique, you you know, can push things in very interesting directions. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's been great chatting to you today, Peter. And, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, always, uh, I'm actually, uh, <laughs> I'm now even looking forward more to when I come over to the States and, uh, oh. we, got, we got on the flat irons and we can, uh, we can just rant about all sorts of different things, uh, and, and cool. chat stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, one thing I just want to, uh, leave everyone with is, um, as I said at the beginning, uh, Peter's a, a climbing coach um, in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and uh, works with individuals and is all, also uh, has a blog. So are there any particular locations that you would like people to be pointed towards? Um, if they would Oh, like yeah. So, yes, yeah, for sure. I mean, my my, uh, you know, my day job is is uh, teaching at a college, but I, I definitely work with uh, groups and individuals at the Boulder Rock Club. One of the speaking of long-term uh, institutions in climbing. It's one of the earlier commercial gyms. It's been in Boulder for, you know, uh, boy, we're going on like 30 years, I think at this point. Um, so yeah, drop by, say hi. Um, I'm on social media. You know, if you want some thoughts on, uh, you know, getting your own game together and, um, you know, maybe improving by all means, reach out. Um, again, social media, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Peter, Peter Beal, B-E-A-L. And uh, we can go from there. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Tom. Uh, no problem at all. I'll put the links below um, in the detail uh, on the podcast. So just click on those if you want to find Peter. And otherwise, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this little journey of climbing, performance and training history. I know we would have forgotten a whole number of people, <laughs> locations, dates, etc. Don't crucify us for this. Please <laughs> hope that this was illuminating and inspiring for your own journey. And thanks for tuning in. And we will see you again very soon.